all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. dirty word, right? One that's become synonymous with anti-technology crusaders that want to return us all to an idyllic past where everyone is free from their phones. But who are the real Luddites? Where does this term come from? And how has it been misused? And do we perhaps all need a little bit more King Ludd in our lives? Brian Merchant certainly thinks so, and he is here to answer all of our burning questions about Luddites. He's a technology columnist at the LA Times, and he also is a Motherboard alum. We once made him eat Soyant for a month. He's got a new book out called Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech, and it's all about those beautiful Luddites. Brian, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Fantastic book, lots of questions. First one, why do you hate technology? You know, I got to stop you right there. That segue, I was, uh, it was sending up the red flags because, you know, part of the, you know, pitch is uh, I've been going around talking about, about this book. And one of that, one of the big things you have to front load is the, the Luddites do not hate technology. They are not anti-technology. They're not mad about the technology itself. They're mad about the way it's getting used. Right. Just like, you know, uh, a lot of the writers on strike right now have waved signs about AI, but it's not so much the AI itself that, I mean, they might think it sucks. They might think that the actual technology can't do what the executives and everyone says it can do, but they're mad that studios clearly want to use it to undermine how much they get paid and to sort of break their uh, worker power. So that that's a pretty clean analogy for, for how the Luddites thought about technology, too. They liked it. They liked having technology in their houses, as they often did. They just didn't like it when bosses were going to use it and say, we're going to organize these machines this way, and now you don't get paid as much. And also, you have to work in a windowless room, and there's going to be child labor involved. So that was more the the, the complaint. Well, then let's, let's back way, way, way up, then. Uh, okay. Let's <laughs> Uh, do how many people are asking you first? Actually, I've got a meta question. If I can step outside mm. of myself for a minute, how many interviews are starting with "Why do you hate technology?" Uh, you think you're the first, really? Okay, wow. well, I feel more. Yeah. I feel slightly more clever than uh, than I did. Um, <laughs> anyway, I like it. So this book is about. I mean, it's about a lot of things. I think you kind of you basically just gave us a succinct kind of summation of the the thing's journey. Um, growing up, you hear the term Luddite. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, uh, I don't know if it would be a dirty word. It's certainly pejorative. Uh, means mm-hmm. that you know, like, oh, you don't have, oh, you don't have the iPhone. Like, what are you, a Luddite? You don't like technology. Uh, you're stuck in the past. Um, did not know for a long time that Luddites were, you know, actually people. They were a group. There was a labor movement involved. The story is much richer um, than kind of is known now. So can you give us the baseline history? Who were the Luddites? Can you kind of give it like get a little bit more into it? Who who were these people set the scene? When does this happen? Yeah. Uh, First of all, I'll say I felt the same way about Luddites. That's how I I had always heard the term. Um, And it, started popping up 
Um, most recently, a lot, I feel like, in connection to people who were complaining about, um, you know, gig app companies, Uber and Lyft and, and Amazon to some extent, once it became clear that there was quite a powerful labor issue and exploitation was a huge part of the equation of how Uber and Amazon were, uh, you know, capturing so much market share. And you'd see people saying, well, wait a minute, this might not be a good idea. And then their critics, you know, 10 years ago, this was about would would silence them by calling them Luddites. So that's kind of the backdrop of when I started looking into it for advice. I was at vice at the time. My first, uh, my first uh, intro into the Luddite world, the real Luddite world was with an article I wrote for motherboard, I think in 2014, so six million years ago in internet years. Um, and it was, you've got the Luddites all wrong uh, because, yeah, we, I mean, I didn't know. I just used the word the same way or interpreted the word the same way as this derogatory slang against somebody who doesn't get technology. But the real Luddites were cloth workers um, at a time when cloth workers were like the largest industrial base uh, in England, there was m- more cloth workers in industry than just about anybody else, um, maybe besides agricultural workers, but hundreds of thousands of, of cloth workers, people who are you know, using a hand loom to weave cloth, people who are using sort of giant shears to finish cloth, people are using framework um, uh, it's, 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 uh, the framework knitters who are who are knitting uh, garments like uh, like like stockings, um, lace. Cut, you get the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was sort of the the that was kind of also the big industrial base that's motivating the industrial revolution. Um, and now that industry had existed for like 200 years in more or less the same shape. There was a system. People worked at home. People had their shops in their, in their houses. They would bring on a few like journeyman weavers. Maybe they had a couple more looms. Um, They worked with their families. They had gardens. It was like a night, you know, it wasn't always a prosperous life, but it was really, it was, it could be a nice life or you're working in workshops with, with your, with your colleagues, your peers and your friends. Um, and it and it's a trade that's really governed by tradition, by norms, by standards, by community. Um, and when things start to change, it's not really the machinery itself, although in some cases there are particular machines that entrepreneurs and factory bosses can kind of use to start hitting the gas. But what they really start seeing happen is the advent of the factory and the division of labor as kind of outlined by Adam Smith and the laissez-faire sort of proponents of free market um, ideology. And you see these factory owners start to say, well, maybe we can put more automated machinery into these factories. Maybe I can build a six story building, organize labor reduce the cost, maybe have children come and, and, and run these machines. And well, I they can, got the little hands that can get into the, get into the spaces. I stole that one right out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, it's so grim. Yeah. I mean, they really, you would have seven year old kids running around, like as the machines are like running full steam and just, they were called pickers. They would, because the machines would get mm-hmm. stuck if little bits of cotton or, um, uh, of yarn would get would get jammed in the machines and it would gum up the works. So they hired these seven year olds to go. And yeah, sometimes it's just 
boom, yeah, there's your finger. You don't have a finger anymore. Uh, that was one of the better injuries you could you could walk away with because right. if your shirt got stuck in one of these machines, as I demonstrated in, in, in one part of the book, you can get, you know, it, it, it was it was awful. And the cloth workers knew it was awful, not just because of that sort of violent, uh, like demonstrably abusive sort of regime, but because it just sucks, right? Like, why don't people want to go back to work today, you know, from the remote work situation? You don't want to sit in a room where somebody stands at your command. That was the line that they said, um, where you're told what to do, when you can go to the bathroom, uh, in a windowless room, the, all that camaraderie is gone. The fr- flexibility of working with your family is gone. So the, so the, the cloth workers saw that coming, and they also saw their wages falling because of that, just that uh, divided labor and the factory owners kind of for the first time were tearing up all those standards I talked about and saying, Hey, we've got a factory now you got to compete on price. Also we're automating your job. Um, so wages fall, the factory looms. And a lot of these cloth workers are starting to re- actually just kind of go hungry. Their wages fall so far that some of them can't afford to pay their families. So they, they spend about 10 years uh, from the beginning of the, 1800s until you know the just after that first decade in 1811 going to going to parliament and say and saying hey you know this is getting out of control we can't feed our families we have we want we need a minimum wage we need some uh some maybe just even some like basic welfare benefits we would call them today maybe you could regulate the trade because a lot of these laws are actually on the books and nobody's uh making these entrepreneurs uh, follow it just like they were like the Uber of the day. They're you know, moving fast yeah. and breaking things. Yeah. They were just like, Oh, we've got, you know, we have machinery. We don't have to adhere to these old regulations that are things that, that concern things like apprentice uh, terms or, you know, you used to have to spend seven years to apprentice in a trade. And that's not just so you can get good at it. Um, although it is that, but it's also so that it kind of controls the balance of uh, of who enters the trade so there's not way too many people competing on price which is what happens when you have when you know, entrepreneurs tear it up and all of a sudden you have children working uh, in the in, in the machine shops and the skilled workers have to have to compete with that so they get rebuffed after 10 years of of fighting uh, of sort of pushing parliament you know it's not a democracy they, you know, the best they can do is write petitions and, and go down to London and say, hey, pretty please don't, you know, let us starve. And the government at the time said, too bad. Uh, that's what's going to happen. Um, and there was no unions, so they couldn't organize. They couldn't collectively bargain for their rights. There was laws on the books per, uh, forbidding combinations. That was just the term for, for union at the time. So you could not even go with your colleagues and say, we think you're screwing us over. You're trying to force us into the factory. If we go, we want these assurances and the factory owners could say, no, we've got, you know, a line of uh, children that we're, that we're, we're getting uh, piped in from all around the country. Um, And they ran out of options. Basically it was a tactic of last resort, but in 1811, a lot of these cloth workers have finally had enough and in the middle of a, of a big depression where on top of all that, that I just described, there's bad trade and they, the, a lot of the import markets are closed off because there's a war with France. So they organize this rebellion um, and it, and they start adopting the moniker 
Ned Ludd or Ned Ludd, uh, General Ludd as their figurehead. Um, has ties to Robin Hood. It's the same region. The first Luddite outburst is in Nottingham, in the Nottingham area, Nottinghamshire. And what they do is they sort of organize this huge campaign where they will confront a factory owner with a letter basically saying, we know you've got 200 of the obnoxious machines, they called them, that are stealing our bread. You've caused 1,000 members of your own community to go hungry to and cannot feed their families. Take down these automating machines. Uh, uh, and if you don't, you're going to get a visit from Ned Ludd. And that's when they, if they, if they didn't get a response, Ned Ludd, under the cover of night, would lead his troops. Um, they'd either hold up the factory owner at gunpoint, and they'd sneak into the to the shop with a giant hammer, and they would smash only the automating machinery, only the only the machinery that was that was affecting the trade, that was allowing the factory owners to concentrate profits at their expense. They'd leave the other machines alone, and they'd say. Don't bring them back, or you'll, or, or next time we'll do the whole thing. Uh, we'll, we'll burn the whole place to the ground. Um, and the rebellion spread. Um, it was super popular. They were like Robin Hood. People would cheer them in the streets once it got brazen enough. Um, you know, it wasn't a centrally organized thing. If you were in Manchester and you were protesting the power loom, you could uh, adopt your own Ned Ludd avatar. If you were in, you know, another district in the West Riding and north of you know, the Nottingham, uh, you could invoke Ned Ludd and organize your own parties. So it was this like really kind of intense distributed movement that kind of spread almost like a meme. He's a, yeah, he's a Ned Ludd is a mythic figure, right? Yeah. Can you, can you tell like, cause it, it's not a person. Um, but can you tell, describe like who was Ned Ludd? What did he look like? What are the kind of like the symbols of that meme? Yeah, yeah we, can pull up. we have a, a photo um, that we can show the people on stream as well. File photo. A file photo <laughs> of Ned Ludd. Uh, so that that is a yeah, that's a depiction from the time. That's 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 one of the only sort of artist rendering artist renderings of, of Ned Ludd, Ned Ludd. And I think some people kind of think that that one maybe even was an outlier. But but they absolutely would often sort of adopt uh, drag they would go on on these raids especially the public ones in in drag and they, and they would do that for a lot of reasons but but to answer your first question um ned ned ludd he may he may or may not have been a real figure or inspired mm-hmm. you know by a real figure we don't know for sure the first time he shows up is in um is, is in a letter uh in 1811 after the luddite uprisings begin so there's a lot of you know, debate as to whether or not he was totally apocryphal. They just made him up out of whole cloth because Ned Ludd, the syllables and sort of the register kind of sounds a lot like Robin Hood. So they may have just been lifting it kind of whole cloth. But the story was, was that he's an apprentice. Uh, he's a, he's an apprentice framework knitter. Um, and that's, they, they make sort of the, the stockings that were popular uh, in the, in the 18th century, sort of before, um, before pants or trousers sort of took over um and and other other knit goods and his his he was an apprentice his master told him to work harder work faster um when he didn't do that to his master's satisfaction um the master went down to the magistrate and had him whipped 
um, which infuriated young Ned Ludd. So he grabbed a, a hammer, smashed the machine of his discontent and uh, fled into Sherwood Forest. So that was the legend they kind of gave him. It's unclear if it's just kind of a, a, a fabrication, an origin story, but it gives this this sort of framework. And so Ned Ludd was then hiding out and that was supposed to have happened, you know, years and years ago. So Ned Ludd is sort of this mythical avatar that, that they can invoke and they sign all the letters, Ned Ludd, General Ludd, or whatever. Um, king Ludd sometimes. King Ludd. Sometimes he became a king. Yeah, there's a, you know, down with all, all kings, but uh, Ludd. So it, it, it was it was quite a, quite a useful sort of uh, organizing metaphor or visual sort of uh, symbol. And, and that that uh, image you threw up there was was, of, you know, one of the one of the Luddites kind of going to battle and they would they would adopt they would often adopt sort of um, women's clothing, uh, both sort of as a, as a, a disguise or as sort of to play into sort of this, it was this liberating movement, right? Like they had been at this point pushed down and beaten down for so long. And sort of that's what they, they were facing being told what to do every day in a factory. And it was kind of this way of, uh, of both sort of exhibiting this sort of liberation. And then also a lot of scholars think calling back to sort of the solidarity with um, the, the, the women who had been automated first. And that's a part of the story I, you know, I, I go into um, in a couple points of the book, but there's, there hasn't been nearly as much scholarly work done about sort so when the very, very first automating machinery uh, gets built, like the spinning Jenny, that is automating the work of, of, of knitters uh, of who, who are, who are making, who are spinning rather the spinners who are spinning the yarn and that was that was a job typically done by women, and it was an important part of the household's income. Um, and that got automated away really quickly. And that that trade, it was still a very patriarchal society, um, and it you know the, it met with much less uh, resistance. Although there was plenty of resistance, and throughout the Luddite rebellion, you do see um, a lot a lot of women you know taking taking charge in a lot of these. Um, these these events and, and riots and and uprising they they do a lot of really little really interesting uh work sort of uh resetting the price of food that's been overpriced for instance doing food riots or and joining the luddites in the trade so it was it was really interesting it was you didn't quite see a lot of that at the time but it was this show of solidarity with uh um w- with other craftsmen who had been sort of uh automated away from from history you know and and no one had really talked about it yeah it's the book is fascinating because it's this i wouldn't say it's a retelling but it fills in the blanks of a period of history that uh when i scanned over like when we went over it in public school it's this is the industrial revolution bunch of machines come in um uh, these factories go up Things get consolidated into cities. People move out of the burbs and out of the country and into more centralized locations. Everyone makes a bunch of money. Uh, don't worry about the Charles Dickens aspects of it. It's fine. Um, yeah. And I've never heard of tri- triangle shirt waist. Right. No. Who, who like, that anyway? No, no, no. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Uh, so like the book kind of fills in the blanks on like the human side and the human cost of the industrial revolution. Uh, also, I would say like early, you know, early solidarity, solidarity and organization movements in like the, the in, in like the modern setting, uh, but also mm-hmm. like um, 
early feminist theory and uh, uh, like the romance movement, uh, which I thought was like super, like these super fascinating aspects that I was not uh, prepared for <laughs> as I sat down to read it. Um, can you tell us about uh, Mary and Frankenstein and ask, answer the question, is Frankenstein a Luddite monster? Yeah. I mean, you know, there was, there's a lot that goes into Frankenstein. She's thinking about a lot of things. She's thinking about sort of like the, the galvanic experiments and Darwin, which were kind of big at the time, you know, sort of the uh, Luigi Gal- Gal- Galvani at the time was experimenting with introducing electric current into, you know, into to dead, the dead specimens to, um, well, he was investigating a whole bunch of stuff, but for the, but you know, he, and he did it and he found that, that it would twitch. It could animate the muscles and it could move. And this was a really popular sort of experiment in the Royal society in England at the time. Um, so, you know, there's other things in there, but absolutely at the time that the Luddite uprising is sort of reaching its fever pitch, uh, Mary Godwin at the time who she become would become Mary Shelley and that, sort of journey there is included in the book, but she Mary's exposed to all of this. Her father is a famous anarchist philosopher, maybe one of the very first anarchists um, uh, and and has written some famous texts and gotten some attention in intellectual circles in England uh, with his work sort of advocating um, an early form of anarchism. And so she has a lot of, you know, romantic poets kind of coming through and, and thinkers. Uh, I, I detail one uh, such sort of dinner salon where, she, where uh, Aaron Burr, the, you know, the, the one time, you know, presidential contender in the U S who assassinates Hamilton. Uh, he shows up and, and, <clears throat> and, 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 and so all of these ideas are very much in the air and one thing that the romantics are thinking about are, are the Luddites. And the Luddites are waging this sort of rebellion against an oppressive regime of, uh, of work, against basically the institution of what would become modern-day capitalism um, and sort of the dominion that that would have over them. So naturally, as you know, romantics like the underdogs and they like the freedom of spirit and, um, and Lord Byron, who's another major character in the book, he, when he's about to become super famous, he's already notorious. He's about to publish the, you know, the child, uh, Harold child, Harold's pilgrimage. Am I getting that? I'd be embarrassing if I got it wrong. Anyways, he's, he publishes that becomes a superstar. And he also gives this huge speech to parliament defending the Luddites, probably the most famous and most influential speech in defense of the Luddites at the time doesn't come from any statesman or, uh, or political figures. It comes from Lord Byron who was a Lord and he had sort of just taken up these duties and Lords are supposed to hold forth about politics and weigh in and all that. And this is what he chooses to do. So for the first time to defend the Luddites who the state wanted to make, uh, make, they want, state wanted to make breaking a frame, a capital offense. So you could be murdered for breaking a machine. You could be executed. And Lord Byron found that outrageous. And he gives this huge florid speech, the timing is almost kind of like, is it easy doing this to kind of promote this book he has coming <laughs> out because it like, it comes out in just like in the next month. And, but Byron actually to his credit sticks with the Luddites and he will, he writes anonymous poems and that get published in the newspaper, which is kind of a, a famous uh, and, and sort of well, 
uh, used form of protest at the time. You'd publish these sort of anonymous poems that that uh, satirized the the crown, and you you know it, it, you you sort of uh, mocked them, or and and he would do that in defense of the Luddites time and time and again. Anyways, all that's in the air when Mary Shelley sits down to write. Frankenstein famously at that summer retreat in Geneva where Byron, Percy and herself um, and, and John Polidori are all gathered um, that the Luddites are, are just, you know, kind of reaching, you know, they have, they've already sort of had their big explosive moment, but they're firmly in the pol- the, the public consciousness. Her husband, Percy at the time is a huge Luddite supporter he sends money to the families of the luddites uh who 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 are killed by the state um and so when she's writing frankenstein it really does seem like she's she's pulling from this example of what happens when not only a technology is used or unleashed in a way that is not humane um, or is not uh, or is not well considered or is reckless. All it is all of those things. But then the the masters of that technology also just kind of completely turn a blind eye to the to uh, to what happens. Um, and that's an, a really important part of the early of, of Frankenstein. I don't know if anybody's reread it recently, but it's so different from sort of the popular conception of Frankenstein where the, you know, the, the simp monster who just uh, knows not what he does in the book, you know, Frankenstein is intelligent. He's the Frankenstein's monster rather is intelligent. He's constantly grappling with, you know, he's with very his own. sad. He's so sad. And he just, and time and again, he, all he wants Victor Frankenstein to do is to sort of, uh, you know, Take, take care of him, help him out, give him, you know, somebody that he can talk to that's not a monster. He asks for a companion. He wants Victor to build him a companion. And, you know, Victor is so repulsed by uh, by what he's done or what what this monster is that he can't even look at him. He flees him. He ignores, he ignores him. He tries to just abscond from any and all responsibility, which that has a lot of ramifications, I think, for how we see a lot of, tech titans even now kind of uh, you know uh, i'm gonna build facebook and then see what happens and oh whoops i did a genocide uh sorry uh not my problem uh it's it's kind of the attitude that 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 has sort of you know really been entrenched for for 200 years they build the technology first see what happens and don't claim this responsibility they built this whole factory system all these automating machineries and then they didn't try to take care of society at all. They hadn't had no interest in that. And so, yeah, people rise up, get angry, you know, smash the machines of their discontent. And it it really seems like that is in the DNA of, of of Frankenstein. And I cite a number of scholars who've really done the work in um, sort of making that linkage. Uh, And, and it's, you know, are probably our most powerful, uh, science fiction, uh, you know, Brian Aldiss, the famous sci-fi writer, calls it the origin of the species, Frankenstein. So it's in that DNA, that Luddite DNA is in, you know, science fiction itself uh, as a means of resisting, rebelling, critiquing uh, technology, especially technology gone rampant and, and those who wield it. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We are back on with Brian Merchant. Can we back up again? Uh, you said that they were going to make Smashing a Loom a capital offense, meaning you would be killed if you busted one of these machines. And I'm wondering, like, can we go through, how do you get to where a governmental body decides that you're, they're going to kill you for destroying an inanimate object? Like what was the nature of these uh, Luddite rebellions were, did they kill people? Like what was the violence like? So it's you know at, at first it's extremely well organized and extremely disciplined. You know they hold drills. A lot of them, a lot of these men had done time in the um, in in the army fighting against Napoleon um, because most young men had at that point. Uh, so they knew at least roughly how to sort of organize uh, <clears throat> a small platoon, I guess you would say. So they would run drills at night so that they could, uh, you know, work and operate efficiently. They would, uh, they each had sort of numbers that they would call out to do roll call to maintain anonymity. They had a general LUD who would lead the raiding parties and they would, you know, as I described earlier, you know, especially at first they would, they would, they, their targets were very selective. They, it was, the factory owners in town or the bosses in town who were violating the standards and the code of uh, uh, that had sort of long upheld their their communities who were who were most aggressive in basically getting rich at the direct expense of somebody else because at that day you could see like oh uh, William Horsefall's building his factory outside of town and now he has uh, 50% more business and I have 50% less like, okay, that's, it's pretty clear where that happened. And now I'm hungry. I can't feed my family. Uh, but he's got his factory humming over there. He's got, you know, underage workers running it and he's taking all the profit for himself. It was of, in the moral dimension of this was so much clearer than that. Just looked to them like theft. You're taking, you're taking my bread as, you know, they stole my bread is what they would say. <clears throat> so, they would target men like that. There were entrepreneurs who didn't want any part of, or there was, I mean, there, there was, uh, there, there, there were merchants and sort of the men who could either choose to become entrepreneurs or choose to kind of protect the, you know, the sanctity of the community. Um, and those sort of bosses that had more, maybe more machines, they had larger operations that weren't using the automation uh, tools in a way that was uh, destructive to, to, to the to society hurtful to commonality was another one of their terms. Um, they would leave them alone or if they took the machines down, they would leave them alone too. Um, so it was very, you know, it was, it was fierce. And in a lot of ways it was militant. They would smash the machines. And if the factory owners didn't listen and they put them back up or then they would come and torch some factories. But throughout the entire campaign, it was only after the state made it a crime to punishable by death to to break a machine 
after the state sent thousands of troops to basically occupy these industrial towns, which again, as today, like it's the, the state has a choice. It's if it had any curiosity or any interest in supporting the workers who are starving, there's a lot that it could have done to help ameliorate the issue, but instead it chooses to dedicate its resources towards sending thousands of troops to basically turn the industrial districts into occupied zones. Um, so they arm and, and staff the, the factories with, uh, with, with soldiers, British soldiers and mercenaries. Um, and so it really becomes this, you know, unassailable firewall that the Luddites eventually run out. Of, I mean, there's, they're popular, they're numerous, they're well-organized, but when you have a, you know, a six story factory that's backed up by British troops and mercenaries willing to fire on will, which is what, what, what happens in, in sort of the culminating incident of the Luddites, they try to take on one of these huge fortified factories and they, they sort of get gunned down um, at, in their attempt. And, and it sort of shows some of the Luddites that maybe they've reached uh, the limits of, of what they can do. And one of the Luddites does finally at the end of sort of this first outburst of Luddism um, snap and he assassinates one factory owner in cold blood who was particularly nasty, always talking about how much he hated the Luddites. His famous phrase was he wanted to ride up to his saddle girth in Luddite blood. He was just, he was itching for a fight. Um, and so they ambushed him and gave it to him. Um, but after that, the popular support for the movement kind of falls away. Um, Cause it, you know, gunning someone down in, in cold blood is a lot is, is quite different than having this, sort of this heroic avatar that's, you know, breaking the instruments of injustice. Um, and so the, the ending sort of body count really is it's the Luddites killed one person and this it's, you know, depending on how you count it, uh, the, the Luddites that were killed in the riots and the uprisings, because the mercenaries and the, the, the soldiers did gun down a bunch of Luddites too. And then, dozens get hung at, at York castle in sort of a public show trial demonstrating that the state is serious about, uh, uh, about executing people who run afoul of, uh, of, of the law. Uh, so it's, it's, it's scores and scores of, of Luddites um, killed by the state to, to this one factory owner that, that the Luddites did, did murder. Did the movement persist after that, what I know you talk about, you know, this, this second um, kind of uprising situation, like what, what did they learn after that? Or what were, what were the takeaways after that happened? Yeah. I mean, I think there were still, <clears throat> cause so my focus in the book is of this initial, as you say, kind of um, uprising and it, that it was by far, the most explosive, like it really had like, a lot of people thought England was on the brink of civil war. It was so, um, so explosive and, and so tumultuous uh, that, that really no one knew which way it was going to go. Cause city after city, after city, um, this is, this is breaking out in the countryside in the countryside and the re it was really, it was really kind of a, a wild time. Um, after 1813, which is when the Luddites are hung. Um, it does 
it does die down a good deal and it does Luddism persist throughout the rest of the decade. I think the last sort of organized Luddite raid was in 1819. So it's, it's, it remains kind of useful as a tactic, um, you know, as you know, to, to remind factory owners that Ned Ludd is out there or that somebody is out there willing to sort of, try to, you know, register their protest against economic conditions by force. So there, there were a number of other notable raids, especially in Nottingham or in and around Nottingham. Um, but the legacy of Luddism is more that the, that, that you can, that you can resist a, a technology, you can generate huge popular support, you can, if you don't have the other tools available to you, you can you can either you can threaten to sabotage an exploitative instrument of of technology, um, and that's something that that more movements afterward take to heart and see some success doing. Uh, the Captain Swing movement, which was uh, there was an automated uh, agricultural machine called the threshing machine um, that was displacing a lot of even poorer agricultural workers. And they organized under the banner of who they called Captain Swing, another apocryphal figure. And they smashed the threshing machines and that, that worked even better. Um, and, and they were able to sort of see some successes, um, but I think more pointedly was that they did register this huge, unignorable complaint about the way technology was used or could be used by people with power and with capital to exploit common common people. And that manifests in Frankenstein, that manifests in a lot of romantic poetry, it manifests in sort of a um, an, an outlook that becomes couched uh, and, and it prepares people to to critique and to think critically about about technology um, in a way that that hadn't existed before. Um, and, you know, scholars like Gavin Mueller, uh, you know, argue that there's a lineage of like of worker sabotage that is owed to the Luddites as well. Um, so they, you know, they actually, they accomplished a lot that they don't really get credit for. And like, as I kind of mentioned in the short term, like sometimes it just worked. Right. And that's why they kept doing it. Cause it, you know, a lot of the, the factory owners said, I don't want any part of this. I don't want military troops on my premises. I don't want to risk, you know, a raid at my factory burning down. I actually kind of sympathize with the Luddites because I know what I'm doing is making them starve. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I was friends with a lot of these people before, you know, this rising trend towards having to adopt automation kind of shattered those community bonds that I had. So I still kind of, I don't want to wish th- these folks any ill harm. Um, so it was effective in the short term in a lot of cases in, in restoring wages. They'd say, okay, we'll pay what you pay. We'll pay you what we were before we got the machines. Just, you know, we don't want any trouble. Um, so it was successful on a number of counts. Uh, but of course, it also has been aggressively, uh, you know, sort of derided, especially by the interests that are interested in having us all just sort of gleefully accept the latest technological products and work regimes that uh, that industrialists and, and sort of the elite class wants to hand down to us. So that's why Luddism and Luddite has persisted as a, as a bad word, because it's very much in the interests of, of, of powerful interests to, to have it be that way. Let's stick with that thought. Can you tell mm. us uh, about your personal journey journey to Luddism and becoming a Luddite? 
Yeah. Yeah. As I, as I mentioned up top, I was a tech writer. I was working for motherboard. Um, I had written about tech for other places. Um, I would never call myself like a, a, a booster or, uh, or uncritical in the way that, you know, tech journalism, especially in the early two thousands tended to be, but you know, I wasn't, I, w- I wasn't aware of these dimensions to any great extent. Um, and then, yeah, when you start seeing this word pop up and you start questioning, you know, why this word exists as it does. And I, you know, I just got curious about it and that kind of led me down the rabbit hole. And it was, it was kind of a revelation. It was like, Oh my God, like this term is completely misused. It's completely misused on purpose. And I, I, I think we have a interest in unearthing the, the true story. Cause in a lot of ways it provides kind of a skeleton key for understanding what the, the, what the real impacts and the real possibilities, the real burden felt by people who are steamrolled by technology. Um, we, we, you know, it unlocks a lot to understand that we have good reason to resist certain technologies that we do not need to blindly accept the equation that's been sold to us, which is technology equals progress. You know, that a lot of, you know, that's kind of just the default setting for a lot of us. It, you know, myself included in some ways, um, at the time I started looking into this. So once you start to in, investigate, you know, how the tendency goes the other way, I think it opens a lot of doors. And I think that's why, you know, the Luddites are more relevant than ever right now, as we're seeing modern day Luddites kind of standing up to generative AI or gig app algorithms or self-driving cars. Um, that there's a reason why there's this connective tissue between all these protest movements and, and, and worker movements in, you know, here in 2023. Um, and that is a strain of, of Luddism that, that is, that is reemerging in the true sense, not as it was misunderstood for so long. What are your big takeaways from that movement? What are the things that we really need to internalize? Uh, how do we make sure that we don't get to a place um, where it is a capital offense uh, if you know someone destroys a server farm and no one gets hurt, <laughs> or someone yeah. smashes their laptop, yeah. well, <clears throat> you know, I think the reason we don't really see true Luddism in the terms of sap- machinery sabotage of, of, of machinery of like capital machinery in most cases, I mean, you're starting to see some of it. We, there's that video of somebody just like smashing a autonomous car in san francisco the other day um you know the coning protest against the is is like a you know that's a much nicer version but that's basically luddism you're shutting down the technology and incurring capital costs of whoever has to come a google bus was a was attacked like was five or six years ago the throwing rocks at the google bus yeah and in france when uber moved in there i mean uh, one thing that modern capitalism is really good at doing is sort of reshuffling and and obscuring where the actual sort of capital equipment is. That's one thing that that uh, like uh, gig apps in particular do. So when Uber moved into France, for instance, and started undercutting the taxi workers, they they revolted and they smashed 
Uber drivers' cars, and it's like I, you understand the frustration, but you're just smashing the machinery of another working person. So yeah. that 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 scrambles things. But I'd say the top line thing, and it, 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 it's a little ambiguous, so it's not. I don't have a program or a manifesto or anything, but the the takeaway is. For 200 years, we have had a mode of technological development and deployment in which people, a handful of people with a lot of money who have a lot of the same interests in maximizing profits are the ones who make the decisions about how technology is developed and deployed. So back then, it was uh, you know industrialists who had the ear of uh, the local lords and aristocrats and maybe the crown and they could, you know, call the home office and get some troops to support their facility. They could, you know, they could get big investment from banks and, and build up these factories. Um, and the average cloth worker had no such influence or no such power. Today we see VCs and, and Silicon Valley companies are able to accumulate hundreds of millions of dollars in investment in something like Uber and say, okay, let's see how this works. Boom. Uber is the new work regime. You have to deal with it. So it's constantly this, this mode of technological development where working people, ordinary people have to play a rear guard action. I mean, in the Luddites case, it was particularly intense, but even in our day, we're seeing what happens when, you know, when Uber rolls into city after city squeezes both cab drivers first gets a bunch of people dependent on its platform then squeezes them too and they have no real mode of recourse they have to you know their their boss is an algorithm it's an app they can't agitate for better conditions um and it's and now we're seeing generative ai and ai software automation and sort of being injected into a lot of these precarious work uh, environments as well so that was another thing that happened completely top down. Open AI didn't say, hey, artists, hey, uh, hey, hey, writers, hey, uh, creative workers. What, what do you think about this tool? Let's let's get together and figure out how, you know, uh, it would be good to develop this. How would this be useful to you? How would it maybe harm you? Instead, it's just here it is. We're selling it to, to people that can now use uh, these tools to as leverage to pay you less or to maybe erase your jobs. You have to deal with it. Uh, you have no input in this matter. So maybe a long-winded way of saying that we really have to find ways that we can build systems that we, we meaning ordinary people, working people, people who these systems affect, have inputs into how it's developed and used, uh, you know, used against them at scale or used for them, ideally. The Luddites would not have had a problem if they had a state in these these machines. They were not anti-technology. They used technology at home. A lot of, you know, these, as I said, at at the top, a lot of these writers and creative workers would have no problems with AI if they were given agency over how it was used and it wasn't being used against them. Brian Merchant, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. The book is Blood in the Machine. It is out now in hardback and in audiobook. You can get it wherever fine books are sold. And you can find us wherever fine pods are casted. And if you like us, if you really like us, you can also tune in on twitch.tv forward slash vice at 11 a.m. on most Fridays. Uh, We will be recording these live and you can participate, send in your questions, talk to the guests a little bit. Uh, Everyone has a good time. Again, we are at twitch.tv forward slash vice every Friday, 11 a.m.
We are going to be back next week. Uh, we've got a great episode with Cory Doctorow uh, that is kind of of a piece with this Blood in the Machine. He also has a new book out that's all about our frustration with big tech and how a couple simple ideas can set us free. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.